but it's better. So I'm glad to see all of you, and thank you so very much for coming. And uh, I've been looking forward to tonight. Uh, I do believe that God would say something to us from the word of the Lord if we're open to that. And uh, so I trust tonight that you've come open to the word of God. And uh, do remember to be here Sunday. It's going to be a great time in the Lord. And the past couple of Sundays have been amazing. And uh, the presence of the Lord has just been terrific. I don't want to be a prophet of doom tonight, but all of us, of course, are aware of what's going on. But I do want to say that things are not going to get better. Um, The world's not getting better. Uh, Our government and all that, the politics and all this, it's not going to get better. Um, So if you're trusting that this coronavirus thing is all going to go away, the coronavirus might go away, but there's things that our government and whatnot is doing that will not go away. I hope we're all aware of that. That's leading up to the fulfillment of prophecy and what have you. You need to be cognizant of that. And I want to encourage you that are here tonight and those of you that are watching on live stream, it would be advantageous for all of us to be in church while we can. Uh, Jesus said, Uh, to work while it is day for the night cometh when no man can work and we need to give heed to that there's a whole lot more I want to say about that but I'll leave that right there I have come prepared tonight with something to say and um, I don't feel like when I'm in the pulpit I'm beating the air Uh, I think the pastor's voice should be loud and clear in our ears along with the word of God and along with God speaking to our hearts as well. So I would like for us to engage what I'm about to present, turn the media off, turn the news off. Uh, Let your faith and hope come from God and not soak yourself in despair and discouragement and fear. I'm going to talk about fear again tonight. In Matthew 14, the Bible said, verse 22, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So they got in a ship without him. He kind of pushed them out to sea and said, I'll see you later. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him, everybody say, when the disciples saw him. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. So they're fearful of the situation they're in, and now they're fearful of what's coming. Kind of a double whammy, would you say? And straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou bid me come unto thee on the water, 
And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw, everybody say, when he saw. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore did you doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. I want to talk to you for a little while tonight, and I may end up preaching a little bit tonight. But I want to talk to you on this subject tonight, where to stare in a storm. Where to stare in a storm. I'd like to share with you the experience of probably one of my favorite authors, Max Licato, from San Antonio, Texas. He was invited to go up into a military fighter airplane. The plane had been used for training purposes. He was not training, but it was just a chance for him to experience flying in a military fighter plane. And uh, according to his writing, all this occurred in Texas. He said, and I'm going to read what he said. He said, before the flight, I'm a midlife version of Tom Cruise in the movie Top Gun, wearing an Air Force helmet, a flight suit, and a smile the size of a watermelon slice. After the flight, Top Gun is undone. He said, I am as pale as bleach bone. I list to the side. My big smile has flattened as straight as a tarmac on which we had just landed. Chalked to change up to 60 minutes of acrobatics at 10,000 feet. He said, I occupied the cockpit directly behind Lieutenant Colonel Tom McLean. One month shy of retirement, the Lieutenant Colonel invited me to join him on an orientation flight. The invitation came complete with a pre-flight physical, which Locato writes, in which I was measured for the ejection seat, a safety briefing, in which I practiced pulling the handle for the ejection seat, and a few moments hanging in the harness of a training parachute, simulating how I would return to Earth after any activation of the ejection seat. He says, Message to Air Force Public Relations. Any way to scale down the ejection seat discussion. Turns out we didn't use it. No small accomplishment since we dived, rose, and dived again. Sometimes with a vertical velocity of 10,000 feet per minute. He writes, can you picture a roller coaster minus the rails? We flew in tandem with another T-6, which is an American single-engine advanced trainer aircraft. He said, at one point, the two wingtips were separated by seven feet. He said, I don't like to get that close to another person in the shopping mall. Here's what's one hour of aerial somersaults taught me. He said, fighter pilots are underpaid. I have no clue what their salary is, but it's not enough. Anyone willing to protect his country at 600 miles an hour deserves a bonus. The call sign of the pilot is stenciled on the back of his helmet. He said they have such great call signs as such as Iceman and Buff and Hatchet. 
He said his was Max, Max Licato, kind of a no-brainer. Colonel McLean responded to T-Mac. It appears on the back of his helmet just above his collar line. He said, I knew this well because 50 of the 60 minutes I stared at his name. I read it forward, then backward. I counted the letters. He said, I even created an acrostic, T-Mac, T-M-A-C. Tell me all about Christ. I couldn't stomach looking anywhere else. The horizon kept bouncing. So did the instrument panel. Closing my eyes only increased the nausea. So I stared at T-Mac. After all, he was the one with nearly 6,000 hours of flight time. 6,000 hours. He spent more time, Lakato said, flying planes than I've spent eating pizza. A thought that occurred to me as I was regretting my dinner from the night before. 6,000 hours. The equivalent of eight months worth of 24-hour days in the air. Time enough to circumvent or uh, uh, circumnavigate the globe 143 times. No wonder he was smiling when he boarded. This sortie was a bike ride on training wheels for him. I actually heard him humming during a near vertical bank turn. Didn't take me long to figure out where to stare. No more looking down or out. My eyes were on the pilot. If T-Mac was okay, then I was going to be okay. He said, I knew where to stare in the turbulence. Simon Peter learned the same lesson the hard way. It would also be great if we could learn the same lesson. Exchange the plane. Exchange the airplane for a 30-foot fishing boat. This vast San Antonio sky for a Galilean sea. And the two stories began to parallel. The boat was now in the middle of the sea, the Bible said, tossed by waves, for the wind was contrary. As famous lakes go, Galilee only 13 miles at its longest, seven and a half miles at its widest, is a small but moody, very moody body of water. I've been there. I've been on the Sea of Galilee. The diminutive size makes it more vulnerable to the winds that howl out of the Golan Heights. The winds can blow so hard in a very short period of time, it can blow a Greyhound bus off the road. They turn the lake into a blender, shifting suddenly, blowing first from one direction, then another. Winter months bring such storms every two weeks or so, churning the water for two to three days at a time. Peter and his fellow storm riders knew they were in trouble. They should have been, uh, it should have been a 60-minute cruise across the lake or the pond, but it became a night-long battle. The boat lurched and lunged like a kite in a March wind. Sunlight was a distant memory. Rain fell from the night sky in buckets. Lightning slashed the blackness with a silver sword. Winds whipped the sails, leaving the disciples in the middle of the sea, the Bible said, tossed by the waves. It's an apt description, perhaps, for your stage in life right now. Maybe in the middle of a divorce, tossed about by guilt. Maybe in the middle of debt, tossed about by creditors. Maybe in the middle of a recession, 
tossed about by stimulus packages and bailouts. Maybe the sudden, unexpected passing of a loved one. The disciples fought this storm for nine cold, skin-drenching hours. And about 4 a.m., the unspeakable happened. They spotted someone coming to them, toward them, on the water. It's a ghost, they shouted and cried. It's a phantom. They were crying out in sheer terror, one translation said. Listen to pastor tonight. They wanted Jesus to come to their aid. They wanted Jesus to help them. But they did not expect him to come like that. Excuse my vernacular here, but do y'all feel me? When we're in times of crises, very rarely do we expect Jesus to come the way that he does. We expect him to come in the form of a peaceful, of peaceful hymns or on an Easter Sunday morning or on a quiet retreat. We expect to find Jesus in the morning devotionals, church church suppers, and even medication. We never expect to see him in a bear market or in a pink slip or a lawsuit or a foreclosure or wartime or a doctor's sentence to your passing in some manner of time or even in a funeral home. Nobody sees or expects God to come to us most of the ways that He does. We never expect to see Him in a storm. But it is in the storm that He does His finest work. Why? Because it's in the storm that He has our most keen attention. They could not take their eyes off of whatever it was, that figure coming to them on the sea. They couldn't take their eyes off of it. The boat didn't matter anymore. The storm didn't matter. The winds, the lightning, the rain, the turbulence, none of that mattered. What is that creature coming to us on the water? Jesus replied to the disciples' fear. He replied to their fear. He wasn't responding to their faith. He wasn't responding to their trust. There wasn't any. He was responding to their fear. It was an invitation worthy of inscription on every church cornerstone and residential archway. He said, don't be afraid. Take courage because I'm here. I want you to understand the power that inhabits those words. Maybe some of you can relate to this. To awaken in an ICU, for example, and hear your husband or wife say, I'm here, baby. To lose your retirement and yet feel the support of your family in the words, We're here, Mom. We're here, Dad. Those three words, I am here, changes everything. And perhaps that's why God repeats it over and over in the Bible. He repeats the, 
I am here pledged to us. And he repeats it often. Philippians 4, 5 says the Lord is near. Jesus said, you're in me and I am in you in John 14. He said in Matthew 28, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He said, I gave them, I give them eternal life that they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand, he said. Paul wrote, nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from the love of God. We cannot go where God is not. If you look over your shoulder, that's God following you. If you look into the storm ahead of you, that's Him coming toward you. Much to Peter's credit, he took Jesus at His word and said, Lord, if that's you, then command me, come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. I'm often perplexed by this story because I don't know what I would do. Had I been in that boat, I've had some scary times. I'm going to share one with you in just a moment. But I don't, I don't know about that. I, I'm not sure I'd just be that eager to abandon the boat just yet. I would like to know just how confident Peter was that that truly was Jesus. But of all times... For Peter to make that request and Jesus say, come. It seems like if I had been Jesus in all due respect, I'd say, wait a minute, Peter, let me calm the sea first. Hang on, Peter, let me minister to you and pray for you for a minute. Hang on, Peter, let me quote some scripture and give you some encouragement before you step out of that boat. He didn't do it, he just said, come. Lord, if it be you, bid me come. And Jesus said, come. What an awful environment. For Jesus to honor somebody's faith or ignorance, I'm being trying to be real. What a crazy time to encourage somebody to get out of a boat and come to Jesus. I, I'm perplexed by that. I always have been. But this is what Jesus knew, and this is what I want everybody to hear tonight. If you're watching live stream, quit petting the dog and put your cup of coffee down and all that. Peter would have never made this request on a calm sea. Let me ask you again, do you feel me? We don't need Jesus when it's calm. We don't even need him to come walk on the water. As a matter of fact, when it's calm... We don't even need to see him at all. Do you think this caught Jesus blindsided? He sent them off on that ship by themselves for a reason. Yes, he did. And he stirred that water up more than they'd ever seen before and then came walking to them on it. And Peter was willing to get out, abandon that boat to get to him. But had that water been calm, it would have never happened. Had Christ strolled across that lake when it was as smooth as glass, Peter would have applauded, and no doubt he would have maybe stepped out of the boat, probably wouldn't have, but he would have clapped and told Jesus, wow, you're a real miracle worker, man, I am so impressed. And that's our response when we see the, the miraculous. Y'all bear with me for a minute. I'm being pretty intense and passionate right now, but I can't help it. 
uh, I've been, I feel like I've been wake, woke up to some things that, that we need to shore up in our lives. It's not a real big deal for most of us that Sunday morning that Tucker was healed right over there and he walked in here and he couldn't walk and was looking at surgery and all that stuff and Brother Dave prayed for him and he just ran right across front of this building and we all, good Jesus, you're a good boy. Man, look at Jesus go, you took care of that. But if that was you or your child, y'all feel me now? We have to understand that God has to make times turbulent in our lives sometimes so we value our relationship with Him and we can really value His power is the point. Storms prompt us to take unprecedented journeys for a few historic steps and heart-stealing moments. Peter did the impossible. He defied every law of gravity in nature. He walked on the water, the Bible said. There may have been some would not have tolerated such brevity or or swiftness. They would have flooded the margin of the book with red ink. That's elaborate. And how quickly did Peter exit the boat? And what were the other disciples doing? And what was the expression on his face? And all that kind of stuff. It's kind of what we do. But Matthew had no time for such questions. He moves us quickly to the major message of the event. And that is where to stare when you're in a storm. But when Peter saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. The lesson learned here is what to stare at when life is spiraling crazy all around you, and you don't have a clue what today holds, much less tomorrow. I'm trying to help somebody here, and I'm trying to help myself here tonight. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know where we'll be this time next year. So that's why I'm trying to condition us right now to understand there's something that you can stare at. I don't care what's going on around you. It doesn't matter what life is like around you. There's something you look at. Lakato learned that in the airplane. As long as I can see the pilot, and if the pilot's okay, I'm going to be okay. I don't know what happened with Peter. Perhaps a wall of water eclipsed his view. A wind gust snapped the mass over his head, and and, and with a crack and a slap, a a flash of lightning illuminated the lake, and the water looked looked like a mountain in front of him. Peter shifted his attention away from Jesus, and it doesn't matter what the reason is. It doesn't matter how justified he could have been. It doesn't matter. He took his eyes off of Jesus, period. And it didn't matter the reason. There's no justification, in other words. And when he did, he sank like a brick in a pond. Give the storm waters more attention than the storm walker and get ready to do the same. Whether or not storms come, we cannot choose. But where we stare during the storm is our choice. I found a direct example of this. I remembered a direct example of this truth while I was sitting in my cardiologist's office several months ago. My heart rate and blood pressure was misbehaving, taking the pace of a NASCAR race and the rhythm of a Morse code message. 
I'd gone to the doctor that morning. Sister Murphy went with me. He checked my blood pressure and listened to my heart beating and said, I don't like the sound of it. And he asked me to take an x-ray, and so I did. And but he called me that afternoon. My doctor, I've gone to him for, all, for some 50 years. He's never called me, ever. But he called me that Wednesday afternoon, and he said, I saw something unusual on your x-ray, so I sent it out, and I think you might have an aneurysm on your aorta coming right out of your heart. And so I've made an arrangement for you to go to an emergency room, and he told me where to have a CAT scan done. And so at about 4 o'clock that afternoon, we had church that night, and I had hoped I'd be in and out quick enough to come on to church that night. But after I arrived, I realized what potentially could have been going on in my body. And I didn't know after I arrived that if I was going back home that night or if I was headed to open-heart surgery. But after the CAT scan, I went home, but it didn't stop there. I was sent to a specialist the next day, and again, Sister Murphy was with me. When I was a kid in school, I didn't like being sent to the principal's office. And as an adult, I don't like being sent to the doctor's office. It's never good news. We went in, took a seat, and quickly noticed the doctor's abundant harvest of diplomas. They were everywhere, from everywhere. One degree from the university, another degree from a residency, the third degree from his wife. I'm kidding. But the more I looked at his accomplishments, I thought perhaps I'm in good hands. But when I was sent to the examination room, and it had a large window in it for which I was thankful for later, about the time I leaned back in that exam chair, one of the nurses came in. I guess they're nurses of some training. She entered, and coming in with her was a storm that I really can't explain. She came in and said, I see on your chart that you was in the emergency room last night, and the way your blood pressure is right now, it looks like you may be headed back. And when she said that, all of everything negative just cut loose in my brain I had walked away from the hallway from the display of diplomas and I had lowered my gaze to the dilemma of my physical disorder and as I listened to the nurse tell me that I was potentially headed for the emergency room again the contrary winds began to blow and after she left my anxiety skyrocketed and my faith plummeted and I asked that that person not come back into the room and check on me again I got off the exam table for a few minutes and I stared out that large window overlooking I-12, praying with all of my heart, and I was looking for Jesus. What happened to my peace? I was feeling kind of peaceful just a few moments prior. What, I, what happened to me is I counteracted diagnosis with diplomas. In between paragraphs of bad news, I looked for the wall of reminder of good news. And I stared out that window, and the next person came in and took my blood pressure, and the next person came in and took my blood pressure. It ended up being about seven or eight people over about seven or eight minutes apart came and took my blood pressure. One lady came in and mistakenly put a child's blood pressure cuff on my arm, and when she took my blood pressure, she said the top number is right at a little over 200. 
and uh, I need to go get the doctor right now. I looked at her and I said, lady, and I'll do respect, if it was that high, I think I'd be out on the floor right now about dead or passed out. They realized that mistake and I asked that she not come back into the room again. Cannot tell you the fear and the anxiety that I was feeling. And all it was was anxiety plus high blood pressure, but I had never had that before. But that window, that window was probably the most unusual place that Jesus would come from. Because every time they'd leave the room, I'd get up and I'd go stare out that window. Sister Murphy can tell you what I'm saying is true. And I stood there and with every ounce of fiber in me, I prayed that God would come to me right now. God, I need you right now. And he did. I ended up going home that day with just a very simple diagnosis of high blood pressure. But for about 30 minutes, I went through something that I had never gone through before. And I'll be honest with you, I was not prepared. I had forgotten about the wall of diplomas. And we forget about God's credentials. God does not want us to be naive or ignorant along this line. We're not to be oblivious to the overwhelming challenges that life brings, but we are to counterbalance them with a long look at what God can accomplish. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 has taken on a different meaning to me in the past several days. I hope it does to you. The writer said, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest at any time we let them slip. That's what happened to the disciples that night out of all the miracles they had seen. They had just watched less than 24 hours ago Jesus feed a multitude of people with bread. What happened to that? What happened to that amazing faith? And oh, God, man, Andrew, did you see what Jesus did? Man, that was amazing. And a few hours later, they were, they were reeling and, uh, and obsessed by fear. And no hope. So where is this long list of things that God has done in our lives, personally? What about all those miracles of faith, of, of healing and financial provision? And all of a sudden, we're caught up in this pandemic and faith has gone to the wayside. So what happened to God's resume all of a sudden? I'm not trying to be angry. I'm just, I, I want to convey the point the experience I had in the doctor's office that day was just a couple of months past tumbling down Florida Boulevard when I was thrown off of my motorcycle going about 45, 50 miles an hour. And I listened to four paramedics that says, you, you're, you're lucky to even be alive. Where is faith and where is our testimony when we stand up in church and the waters around us are as smooth as glass? We just got that raise. We got that promotion. We just bought that new house, that new car, and we stand up and say, God is so good to us. Amen. What about now? Is he not being good now? I taught a Bible study on that not long ago. Circumstances don't define God being good or not. God is God. So we have to learn to do whatever it takes to keep our eyes on Jesus. I think of this old song we used to sing years ago. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. 
The truth of that is amazing. It's astounding because it's real and it works. I know this is elementary tonight, and I know it's, it's Sunday school stuff, but what happened to Peter when he took his stare and gaze off of Jesus? What has happened to us when we've done the same? I wanted to be with, with Dave and Farah when they went to Memphis that day. Sister Murphy and I drove them, and I felt like it was partly my job to help him keep that focus. I would see him staring out the side window, sobbing, his whole body sobbing, not knowing if his son would survive that ordeal or not. And I'd put my arm, my hand on his arm, and I did everything I could to say, Brother Dave, just keep your stare focused on him. Don't take your eyes off of him. Keep looking at Jesus. That's what I was trying to say to him. That's what I'm trying to say to you. This place ought to be packed out tonight, but there's people that are afraid. I respect that. I do. But there's a prevailing message that's coming through to my brain every day, every day, every day. We don't have to be afraid. That's why it's important to memorize Scripture and read biographies of great, uh, biographies of great lives and Ponder the testimonies of faithful Christian people. Make the deliberate decision to set your hope on Him. I'm not nearly finished tonight. But courage is always a possibility. Courage is always a possibility. And I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. But C.S. Lewis wrote a great paragraph on this thought. He said, Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted. In spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience, he said, now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, he said, when I was an atheist, he said, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue, he writes, unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or a sound atheist. But just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on whether, on the weather or the state of, of its digestion. So I submit to you tonight in conclusion, if you feed your fears, your faith will starve. But if you feed your faith, your fears will. I don't have time to finish. Maybe another night. But I've been perplexed with a statement that my father-in-law, Brother Nixon, made several days ago. <clears throat> I've had numerous conversations with him, sometimes as a family and sometimes just he and I, over the past several years. And I remember probably some 15, 20 years ago, I installed a mailbox for him out at this curb in front of their house, and he had me put a whole sack of concrete around that post, he said, because this will be the last mailbox I have to fool with, meaning that he would be dead before he would require another mailbox. His son 
Rick installed a new mailbox earlier this year and was telling me about it. And he said, I don't know what person installed that other one, but there was a whole sack of concrete around that thing. <laughs> I had to confess I did it. No, I did it in protest. We don't need that much concrete, but he wanted the whole thing there. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with him. We thought we were losing him. He thought that he was about to pass. He's wanted to go on to be in heaven with the Lord for a long time. He has. He's been very vocal about that. A couple of weeks ago, we thought maybe that time was here. He had fallen and injured himself badly, and it just didn't look good. Went and knelt beside his bed, and the family had walked out. It was just me and him. I didn't even tell Sister Murphy this story. But I tried to encourage him. You've lived a great life. Your kids are grown. Your grandkids are grown. You have great-grandkids, and there's a reward waiting for you that's just amazing. Don't worry about stuff here. We cried and prayed. He woke up several mornings ago and asked Sister Nixon, Is this heaven? I didn't think heaven would be like my house. He literally thought, that he had passed, and that he was in heaven. You know what he's done? He has never taken his eye off of his Savior, ever. With his fall, with PTSD, the Korean War. When he prayed through the Holy Ghost, it occurred to me, when he prayed through the Holy Ghost in the late 60s, he has kept his eye on Jesus. He has never looked to the right nor to the left. He's never quit church. He never backslid. He never quit giving. He was faithful as a clock every service, every service, every service without fail. And it occurred to me just today in preparation for tonight that that's, that's it. That's, that's why he is so excited about going to heaven here pretty soon, he thinks. Because he's never taken his eye off of Jesus. Through every storm he's been through, all of his life, he's always known what to stare at. And I hope in some small way that I can do the same. I have a tendency to blubber and I get lonely and I get depressed and discouraged like everyone else does. But I do try with all of my might to not take my eye off the prize. To understand where my redemption's at. It's not in my bank account, my house. It's not in any of that stuff. There's only one thing that can save me. Period. And if I take my eye off of him for a moment, it could cost me my whole eternity. So I'm determined tonight to keep my eye on him. So I'm going to ask all of you tonight to be careful what you stare at during this storm we're in. Keep your eye on him. Would you stand with me tonight? I plan to talk to you about some other men in the Bible, and there's a long list of them that struggle with keeping their eyes on Jesus. But there's a whole bunch of them that did. All of Jesus' disciples were martyred except one. You know how they were able to do that? 
I don't know if I could be like Simon Peter and say, no, I don't want to be crucified, period, much less upside down. I don't want to be beheaded. I don't want to be burned at the stake. I don't want to be fed to lions. I don't want to die like that. But the reason they could, y'all not hearing me tonight. I'm, I'm not doing a very good job. When, when they were hauled out into that Colosseum, I read today that Italy's opening up the Colosseum again. It just brought, I've been there, been through that place. It was eerie. It was bizarre. But the reason they could be led out there in chains and let lions pounce on them and eat them, there's only one way they could get through that. There's only one way. I don't care how much mental conditioning you have and what kind of medicine you take. You have a breaking point after a while, but not when you keep your eye on him. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We are, I feel enveloped right now by your presence. I feel literally enveloped, encompassed about with your word. I just feel like I'm sinking in a good way in your promise. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know how much longer we'll be able to even have church as we know it. But you know who holds tomorrow. You hold tomorrow. And if, as long as we can keep our eye on you and keep our faith intact and not let fear overwhelm us, we'll all be okay. 100 years from now, none of this will matter to any of us. For probably most of us, 50 years from now, even 25 years from now, it won't matter. God, I pray that you would instill in this church and every person here, every person watching tonight on, on live stream, that you will instill in every one of us a faith that is truly unshakable. Some of us have only been tried by still water. We've only been tried by the calm sea. It was an act of faith to even get in the boat. But now the boat is being tossed to and fro and there's a lot of people that's afraid when, uh, against the backdrop of all of your promises and, and your presence and all the miracles we've witnessed and what have you. God, we, we have to learn how to apply that, how to ingest it. And I pray for Grace Church. I pray for all of our churches, all of our pastors. There are some that are reeling tonight. They don't know where to go. They don't know. They're scared. They're afraid to go to bed. Afraid to get out of the house. I pray, God, tonight for the God of all peace. I pray that the God of all peace would comfort all of our hearts. And even if we're sinking, it's never too late to be saved. Even if we're underwater and cry out, your reach is not too short. I pray that you give your church, your people, peace and comfort, strength and encouragement and inspiration. I ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. God bless you tonight, and thank you so very much for being here. Pray that the service was a blessing, and we'll look forward to seeing all of you Sunday. Walk around and talk to people from a distance. God bless you, and we'll see you Sunday.